0: Hey, listeners, Chloe here. If you need to stay as up to date with the latest developments and innovations in the luxury industry as I do, you need to dive into Vogue Business. It's your ticket to a global perspective on fashion and beauty, delivering exclusive insights that will give you the edge in this competitive, dynamic industry. Just visit VogueBusiness.com today and use the code RUN20 at checkout to join the Vogue Business community. That's VogueBusiness.com, promo code RUN20. Don't miss out. This is The Run Through. I'm Chloe Mao. And I'm Gemma And we are day two of Fashion Week. Happy New York Fashion Week, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> God, we have seven episodes coming out this week. Seven. It's a marathon tromba, not a sprint.
1: Ooh, I hope I make it.
0: <laughs> well, we're here with Nicole. Nicole Phelps. Nicole, you've joined us several times. Would you mind introducing yourself? I'm the global director of Vogue
2: Runway. Tell us who you interviewed today. I interviewed Peter Doe, who is a regular on the New York Fashion Week schedule, but is this season taking his own collection to Paris because he is making his debut at Helmut Lang today, this
0: afternoon. Oh, interesting. And for those of us who may not know, why is Helmut Lang a big deal? I have such great memories of Helmut Lang. He
2: was one of my very first favorite designers when I got into fashion in the 90s. He sort of, to me, defines cool 90s minimalism. Everybody wanted a a black pantsuit by Helmut. Everybody wore Helmut Lang jeans or a Helmut Lang jean jacket. And, uh, you know, the lucky few who scored one of his cool military parkas, you know, I, I looked on with envy. What do you have of Helmut now that you still wear? Sadly, I I just wore everything to pieces and I don't really have have anything. My sister still has a a jean jacket that I got her at one of the sample sales that I went to religiously.
0: I mean, I feel like it's often the case that a heritage brand is reinvigorated with a new designer. Why is
2: this one a big deal? Uh, Helmet Lang has been through many, many uh, changes since 2005. I think is when Helmet Lang, the designer, walked away. Uh, Prada bought Helmet Lang. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, and fast retailing, the Japanese company owns it now. Hmm. And for years, it uh, was designed by the Kolovoses, who are uh, CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund alums. Other designers have cycled through sort of anonymous design teams and. They gave the job to Peter, I think, because he has so often said his major influences were Helmut Lang and Martin Margiela. And uh, because he's such a promising young designer with someone who came out uh, and very quickly established a signature, you know, very strong on tailoring with some of the same codes that Helmut was known for, like a clean, uh, sort of minimal, strong aesthetic.
0: Were you surprised by anything in the interview with him?
2: I thought it was a really thoughtful interview, and he talked more about his his past and his youth with me than I've ever had a chance to talk. I know the producer said they were crying in the studio when it was being recorded that it got very uh, mm-hmm. intimate. I can't wait to hear. I think, well, he says interesting things about how when he started his own line, he didn't, you know, he didn't really talk about his identity as a Vietnamese immigrant who came to America at 14 and settled in, you know, in the suburbs of Philadelphia growing up. He sort of was a bit of an outsider. So that was, it was cool to learn a little bit more about that. Maybe gave me a little more insight into Hmm. how he designs. And
0: Peter Doe is also now Designing for Banana Republic or doing a capsule collection for Banana Republic?
2: He did a capsule collection for Banana, and that comes out in October. So. Okay.
0: B- it, big, big moment for Peter. Yes. Yeah.
2: One thing you'll notice in this interview is that Peter Doe refers to his own collection as P.D. And we started off by talking about what it was like for him to dig into the Helmut Lang archive. I remember shopping Helmut Lang sample sales in the 90s. And uh, as I was coming in today, I thought, oh, it would be so great if I could wear something. But the thing with Helmut Lang is that they were functional uh, sort of minimal, uh, based-in-reality clothes, and I wore them all to death. Um, my sister still has a denim jacket from his jeans line, and it's totally, totally shredded. And so I'm curious what, if anything, is in the Helmet Lang archive. Were you able to go and look at pieces from the 90s and the early 2000s?
1: We did. We did. You know, we, there's there's a lot of digging. <laughs> we, there's There's a big archive in New Jersey, there's an archive in the basement. There are pieces all around the studio. When I when I went to, to interview for this job, I wore my my painter jeans that I've been wearing for, I, I would say, like 15 years at this point. It's the only pair of white jeans I have. It's not white anymore. <laughs> but it's been with me through many stages, and it was my good luck charm, and I got the job in those jeans. And we used those sort of like that as a base for the next sort of like Kickstart the denim line again, because I like I agree with you. Like I felt like Helmut clothes. Like when people talk about helmet, they talk about sort of like the pieces and that they still wear them. And it's sort of like I, I wear the clothes, and it's so rare for someone to talk about a brand that they interact with in on a personal level. Because you know when you hear about, there's a lot of heroes of mine that I would never had a chance to wear the clothes or participate in that way. But I felt like for helmet, there are pieces that I remember saving up money for. I mean, they had vintage at that point, but that I saved up money for. It was too expensive for vintage pieces that I still treasure and love and still wear to this day.
2: There's a lot of uh, interest around Helmut Lang pieces on online, right? There was yeah. that Timothy Chalamet posted something about a utility vest that he had found or something. And I remember uh, all of us at the office were— uh, You know, sort of went crazy for that because Helmet Lang is a hero of ours, too. And then, you know, to see it sort of uh, cross over into the world of celebrity was interesting. Have you been a—have you been, a like, an archive shopper? Do you—are you always on the hunt for helmet pieces? Have you ever found anything online that you've bought?
1: I feel like I've never had, like, good luck finding pieces online. But all the pieces that I found through from, like, you know— resurrection shops and like here and london's and paris and things like that like by chance i felt like i always find really good piece when i'm not looking and i felt like that was was, that's true with helmets where you kind of like stumble upon but i never had any luck sort of like seeking out to the exact pieces that you want I, i think i think the world of helmet is is so vast in terms of It's sort of like an evolution of the pieces that he made. It is foundational pieces that sort of, like, evolve and carry over. Um, And I feel like everyone, like Timothy or me, we all have a a version of, like, what we liked that we sort of, like, look up to. Yeah.
2: How did you stumble or come across his work, uh, you know, early on? How old were you? Where were you? And what turned you on about his collections?
1: I think Tumblr. Yeah, that's like, that's how I found out a lot of the, about a lot of the designer that I, that I look up to. Sort of like browsing Tumblr between like the hours of like midnight to 3, 4 a.m. in the morning um, in the suburbs. Or when I first saw college in FIT as well, like, you know, I was like a night creature. And um, I did a lot of my research at night. And I think there was a the, the huge fashion community on Tumblr, which I felt like, which is now, you know, like same with like Twitter or TikToks, things like that. There was a big community of fashion lovers on Tumblr, and that's how I found a lot of my Peter Doe team on there as well. But that's that's how I found out about, you know, a lot of, like, learning about McQueen's and Hellman and Mojella and things like that through sort of, like, these reposts and stories and captions of, like, people who are obsessive fans who post about it. And I, I felt like I was so young. I was too young to fully understand... What that means, I felt like it was just that thing that I react really strongly to, like Marjala works or Helmet works, in a way where it's almost looked like it's always been there. I felt like good design is a design that feels like it's always been there. And I felt like Helmet work felt like that.
2: So this is happening when you're a teenager. You're in high school and discovering Helmet Lang.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: So you were a kid, basically, when he walked away from his from his fashion job in two thousand five.
1: Yeah, yeah, basically.
2: <laughs> Talk about arriving in America as a as a teenager. Where did you come from, and where did your family uh, settle? It.
1: Um, I moved here from Vietnam when I was fourteen to like the suburbs of Philadelphia. It's called Upper Darby. Um, I went to Upper Darby High School. It's the same high school. Tina Fey. <laughs> my first day of high school, we watched Mean Girls as a introduction film into the into high school. they were really proud of that film, but but yeah, like my my high school experience was really, you know, I would really try I was really trying to blend in and kind of keep my head down. And I know I want to get out, and I know I want to do bigger things. And you know, I wanted to move to New York from watching like Sex and the City and things like that at the time. And it feels like you know like a feels like somewhere where you would go and you would, the like, things would come true. You, like, work really hard. So I felt like I always sort of, like, fantasize about living in New York. But, yeah, my high school is very, it's quite normal. Uh-huh. It's normal. Well,
2: you've talked about uh, in the past that it was, it was hard to, to be an immigrant. And, yeah. uh, you know, the community that you came into wasn't particularly welcoming. How do you feel that shaped you as, as a person? And then did it shape you as a designer at all?
1: I mean, I think it's interesting to sort of like learning really quickly of like using your clothes as sort of like your protective armor of like how to whether you want to stand out, express yourself or to blend in. So for me, it's sort of like, a, you know, my Hollister and my Abercrombie and Fitch outfits was sort of like a tool to sort of like not get bullied and trying to blend in and trying to get out of it. So I know early on that clothing was important. And on that sense of, like, whether you want to be accepted or you want to stand out. Because I had friends who sort of, like, were so brave and, and fearless in, in the way they expressed themselves that I look up to. Um, you know, I, there's a story they always talk about, you know, going to the mall and bought this pair of black skinny jeans from Hot Topics. And I couldn't wear them. I wear them at night. But I, I, I put them on on my first day when I moved to New York. And I just felt... Like it was just always meant to be. Like I felt like clothing always feels like that to me. It's like it's it's always item that that means so much more than they know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it was it was it was hard to sort of like, you know, my dad passed away as well, and my mom's a single mom, so she's always working. So I had to take care of my brother. So I didn't really have time to sort of like think about my creative ventures and those hours between. Midnight to 2, 3 a.m. is sort of, like, where I kind of really, like, kind of, like, express myself through to different formats. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's such an interesting idea that, you know, you were wearing Abercrombie & Fitch or, or Hollister, and that was your armor. And, and, you know, fast forward to now, it's 20-ish or 15 to 20 years later, you obviously have a very different uh, look and style. Do you think of the clothes you wear now as armor, or do you think of that—
1: I think of the clothes I wear now is as tools. Uh-huh. Like it's, it's, I feel like in the morning I I, I need to put something together that I feels like I can work in, and it's sort of like less about expressing myself and more of just I need to get to the office. And you know, some days where, you know, I'm on the ground fittings and things get dirty, and I just need a uniform, almost something that I don't think about that that I'm, I know it looks good and it fits me well, and I'm I feel comfortable in. So I mean, it's a stage of my life where I felt like clothing. Or some sort of the system that I have for myself, sort of like cater to that need at the moment. Yeah.
2: So this idea of uniform dressing appeals to you.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of like what we that I do for my own brand, and what we're trying to do at Hellman as well.
0: The run through will be back in just a moment. I'm excited to tell you about Fat Mascara, an award-winning podcast hosted by two beauty journalists who share their insider access to the beauty industry. Twice Weekly hosts Jessica Matlin and Jennifer Sullivan talk candidly about beauty, news, trends, and the latest products and treatments. You can expect industry gossip, unfiltered product reviews, and revealing conversations with brand founders, makeup artists, perfumers, dermatologists, and more. Plus, Jess and Jen get their high-profile guests like Victoria Beckham and Tracy Ellis Ross to open up about their relationships with beauty culture. Fat Mascara is the beauty industry unfiltered. New episodes drop every Wednesday and Friday. Listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Well, let's backtrack a little bit and yeah. talk more about high school and and your your youth. You're you're new to America. Uh, you know, school is challenging. You know, whether you're fitting in or standing out. Would you say that your high school experience sort of stifled your creativity, or it uh, sort of enhanced your creativity because you were maybe a little bit of a loner, or is that the wrong thing to say? Were you a loner?
1: I mean, I wasn't a loner. I, it's, it's more of like. I know how how I spent. I felt like there are moments that I that I keep to myself. Um like you know those like night hours where I feel like I can do my own things and there are time during the day when I felt like I had to be like you know a good son, a good student, a good brother. I just take care of things. I have to like go home and make rice before my mom comes home and you know go to the business and in the weekend and we have this fish tank that I really hate that I have to clean out every weekend, and now I really hate fish tanks. Things like that. <laughs> that <laughs> I just feel like it shaped me to. I am. I mean, I. I had. a I felt like I had a lot of responsibility um, as sort of like a, the older child in the family, and my mom was working so much. So my creativity come from almost feels like a. At the time, felt like a like a like a secret, like a like a little secret I have for myself, where like oh, I'm dreaming about. Becoming an artist in New York, but yeah, I, I felt like extreme desire to to create and to sort of like get out of Philadelphia. <laughs> that that pushes me really hard to like you know learn how to sew and doing things in the weekend and things like that. My brother brought back this um, this binder of my of my senior thesis that I did. Um, to apply to, to Pratt and FIT. And I totally forgot about all the stresses. I thought, I thought I lost them, but this weekend I had to flip them through like the yearbook and sort of like preparing for this, this podcast and going through all the pieces that I made during that time. And it was interesting, to say the least.
2: <laughs> did you teach yourself to, to sew, you know, looking through Tumblr? How did you figure out how to make those pieces? for your senior thesis?
1: I mean, a lot of patterns, like, learning from, like, books. Like, you know, I, my mom would take me to, like, Joanne Fabric. That was, like, the only sort of, like, sewing center, sew-in center in, in town that you can, like, buy fabrics and sewing tools. I still remember when my mom bought me, like, a machine from Kmart for 20 bucks. And on the kitchen table, I don't know, we sort of, like, figured out how to use the bobbin. <laughs> I made a first dress out of kern, and they didn't have, like, a zipper. So when you get in, you couldn't get out. Um, I remember making sort of like a mannequin from like paper mache, like techniques from art class, and yeah, I just remember just sort of like didn't really understand where this need to make to create comes from. But I, but making clothes was like something that I was really interested in at the time, and I think when after I put on that fashion shows in high school. You know, I casted my friend. I did a lookbook. I think something just clicked. Um, that you know, before that, you know, I was always like drawing and painting and making sculptures and doing ceramic. And I felt like none of those things click until somebody put on like a garment that I made, even though it was, you couldn't get out of it. There was something because then it's the the reactions from that person was interesting because it made them feel something. It was it it felt useful.
2: Well, that resonates for me. The idea of you as the older brother and the responsible one, and you had a lot of a lot of jobs to do as a young person, and and I, g- I guess it makes sense that you would take satisfaction from creating things that have a usefulness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is this true that you only recently discovered that your dad made clothes for for your mom?
1: Yeah, recently. I mean, I when I talked to my mom when I did. The collection about home for, for PD in Spring '22, which is the first collection where I sort of like look back and wanted to talk about my where I come from, my heritage, and, you know, the women that raised me, like my grandma, my aunt, my mom. Because before that, I just didn't want people to put me in the box of like, oh, you're like just another Asian-American designer coming out in New York and things. Like that. So I, I didn't want to talk about, you know, my Vietnamese heritage. I didn't want to talk about my upbringing. I really just, like, dear, you know, we have a point of view. We want to make clothes. We are in the luxury brands. So that was the first collections where, you know, like, I, I went back to Philly, and I had, like, deeper conversation with my mom and asking her a lot of questions. And she was like, why are you asking me these questions now? <laughs> but uh, she came up a few months ago again, and we talked about it, too. And um, I felt like every... When I, as I get older, I get closer and closer to my mom um, because I understand a little bit more what she went through. But they met at sort of like a factory in Germany. Um, and I think he was driving. She was like weaving fabric, and he was like the driver uh, that's like drive these things around. And then he learned how to, how to sew using patterns and sort of like fix them. And he made jeans for my mom. I think that's how they... She fell in love, <laughs> maybe, um, but yeah, that's like she told me sort of like all those stories.
2: Mm. Who are you making jeans for? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I like. I mean, I like. I love. I love that story of like making something for some for people that you care about. Because I mean, at the time too, back when they met, like you know, there was. It's not like you can go out and go shopping. If you want something, you either super rich and someone made it for you, or you have to make it yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's an act of kindness, an act of love. Um, and that's kind of what I want my clothes to be, you know? Like, and I want to be I want to be there for people. I want to be helpful. I want to be useful. Um, I don't want it to add more waste to the world. Because even just, like, talking about sustainability in fashion is already sort of like an oxymoron sometimes. Because mm. right now, I'm already, you know, when you think about it, with this job, I'm adding four more collections into the <laughs> into the fashion industry. So I'm thinking more about the work that we put out and how can we evolve and not sort of like discard every season and constantly seeking our newness. And how do I how do I add to the conversations that like good things takes time and there is a better way to sort of consume and there's a better way to design I think
2: we should step back and talk a little bit about what made Helmut Lang so special. So he is a designer who rose to prominence in the 90s, which was another time of generational change in fashion coming off of the 80s, which was a, a lot of pomp and circumstance, a lot of poofs, a lot of Christian Lacroix and polka dots. And Helmut Lang comes around and it's you know, almost uh, strict. I guess you could say very clean, pared back, and minimally designed tailoring on the one hand, and then on the other, uh, all of this elevation of uniform type pieces. You had uh, parkas, for example, uh, like military parkas on the on the runway, which. It's hard to believe but at that time felt sort of groundbreaking and and novel and uh, the way that he he sort of made jeans into a designer items. Yes, there had been designer jeans in the 70s and 80s but these there was there was a different quality to the to the Japanese denim, the stiff unrinsed denim and he really sort of did dress the new uh, the new generation in fashion, I think. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I agree with everything Jesus said. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and so the difference between the Helmet Lang, the original, and what you're doing is, is that uh Helmet Lang, it was a designer price point. And the way that the, the company is run now, it's it's not quite as high as what you're doing at Peter Doe. It's more of what fashion calls like a contemporary price point. Is that accurate?
1: It feels like, I mean, there's so many boxes on the sales floor. So yeah. I would say that would be the closest <laughs> on what people understand, like sort of like a high contemporary. But I, I don't even want to think of it that way because I felt like that's already like sort of like limiting us because there are things that are, you know, that would cost, you know, more than what the price point is now for helmet. But there will be things that the price it would just make sense. Like, I felt like, you know, like when we had conversations with my CEOs, you know, there are a lot of things. We want to build trust with our customer. We want to open up the dialogue to a wider group of people. But at the end of the day, you know, um, I I want to create a system of dressings that that would be there, that 60, 70% of the body would be carried over season after season. And it's really be about and evolutions and not this constant search for like it won't feels like every season will be a brand new themes and suddenly they go in somewhere. And now I have to design for that. And I felt like we want things to have sort of like longevity and it doesn't have to be super expensive.
2: Uh, tell me about specific helmet Lang collections or pieces that have meaning to you.
1: All of it. I think I think because it's so consistent. I think there's like a consistency that felt really confident. There's this idea break like repetition uh, that things come back again and again in different form. It's like really inspiring to me to sort of like having things that you believe in that you worked on over and over again to perfect it season after season or destroy it or collage it or slash it or paint it over it or Burn it and making something else. Like I feel like there's some things. The idea of like you know that's that's sort of like what I what I look up to. Yeah,
2: he was uh, you know groundbreaking in ways beyond design, of course, too, because he made that. Radical decision to to show uh, in New York before uh, London, Milan, and Paris, and uh, after he did, everybody joined the party, and suddenly uh, New York was no longer the the last the last city in the four city calendar. It was the first, and it really went a long way to uh, changing New York's. Image. It was uh, it was good. I think for for the city's uh, image internationally.
1: Yeah, he's the reason why if you work in the industry in in New York, you you never had a labor day off. <laughs> <We're> gonna... <laughs> Thank you. He's the reason why we always work on labor day.
2: <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Lang. Well, I want to talk about Helmut Lang's legacy because and it could just be because i'm the target audience i'm the right age i was there when he was at his peak uh that he's always remained my reference and i think that he is unique in that way along with martin margiela that he he's always a reference it's not like helmut lang ever goes in and out of fashion and i think it has to do with the fact that he he left at his peak like martin margiela yeah it's a it's a it's a smart thing to do, right? Uh leave yeah. when you're leave when you're at the top. But talk to me as a designer, why do you think his work resonates so so loudly and strongly for so many of you?
1: I don't I mean, I can't speak for other people, but like I think I think for me is I always look up to people who are consistent, who who know what they want and who I don't know like persevere and like really believe in what they're doing and kind of go for it you know like Ray and now you know Rick you know even though I don't wear Rick I just I look up to what he does as well because there's just something so powerful about somebody who just does what feels right for them um, and not sort of like influenced by what's around and I felt like now that I mean positions where, you know, like I'm creating collections and I'm a director of two brands and there are a lot of, you know, commercial constraints. There's a lot of things like, you know, managing people and things like that. And I can see why people want to leave at their peak and want to keep their work pure. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh and Ray and Rick being Ray Kawakubo and, and Rick Owens. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh well let's look at that question another way. And uh what makes Helmut Lang right for twenty twenty three and twenty twenty four? What makes his work timely or what will make your work timely for this moment?
1: I think Helmut is is, is like a forever thing. It's always right. I think it's it's sort of like transcend beyond fashions and it's just a part of your life.
2: Thank you so much for doing this, Peter. Thank you.
0: Nicole, that was so moving. I loved getting to know him more. And wow, I really want to go to visit that Helmut Lang archive in New Jersey. That sounds very up your alley. <laughs> uh, that's it for today's episode of The Run Through. We have a killer episode coming on Monday for our New York Fashion Week Shark Week. See you then. That's it for this episode of The Run-Through. The Run-Through of Vogue is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. The show is produced by Susie Lechtenberg, Chelsea Daniel, and Alex John Burns. It's engineered by Jake Loomis and Gabe Quiroga and mixed by Mike Kutchman. See you soon. Bye. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My
2: first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really... I found transformative.
0: Or, a story told when safely back on dry land. You know,
1: things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to Hmm. eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't (laughs) eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's (laughs) how it works.
0: Join me, Lale Aracoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel. Wherever you listen to your podcasts.